Right, if I can everybody's attention, just to review a couple of announcements. Um, first is that this coming Friday on May the 9th, the memorial service for uh, Dr. Willard Carn, Doug Carn's father, will be held at Barack Church at 11 a.m. And then on May the 17th, which is a week from this Saturday, we'll have our men's prayer breakfast and deacons meeting. Uh, as you can tell, I'm, I'm now recovering, but I'm getting past a cold. Turned out that chest stuff on Sunday turned into a nice chest cold. And uh, I'm hoping I can get through tonight without hacking my way through Bible class. So we'll just pray that I'll make it. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. And so you can be spiritually prepared to study this evening, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're so very grateful that we can come together this evening. We're so grateful that we have the freedom in this country still to gather together and to uh, proclaim your word, to teach the truth of your word, to grow to spiritual maturity and have an impact on the environment around us and on people around us and on the government and society. Father, we pray that we might uh, not take the availability of your word or the teaching of your word for granted. We must understand how vital this is, that the time may indeed be very short that we have this freedom, and we pray that we might utilize this time to the best of our ability. Now, Father, we pray tonight that we might be able to focus and concentrate and understand the things that we're, we're studying and that we may come to a better understanding of how to interpret your word and understand it and apply it in our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we're going to continue the procedure we've had the last uh, few lessons, although last time I got kind of caught up in what I was covering we didn't stop for any any questions. Did we have any questions left over from last time? I don't remember what it was, do you? You'll get to it. Okay. If a question comes in, just kind of wiggle your finger or something so I know that something's going on. Yeah, there is a mic up here. You can come and get it. That'll help. There. Okay. What we're covering in dispensations is one of the most helpful ways of understanding the word that, um, and that's the testimony of numerous people who have studied through dispensations. I would say millions upon millions of people have had their understanding of the word enlightened and clarified as they come to an understanding of dispensations. And I would say the primary reason for that is related to the first of the key elements that we studied, or the key characteristics of dispensationalism, and that is the principle of a consistent, plain, literal understanding of the Scriptures. 
Because once you understand that and you're not trying to read the Bible and decode it and figure out what each word might might mean or how uh, people are, are seeing certain things in the text, it begins to open up to us. And we read it with a level of understanding that is pretty clear because it it's what the words of the text are saying. And, of course, as I pointed out in the past, the second major characteristic is understanding there's a distinction between Israel and the church. And that's important because as we're going through these initial dispensations, which are part of the Old Testament, the two ages of the Old Testament, the first the age of the Gentiles and then the age of Israel, we realize that the initial revelation given by God in Genesis through Malachi, that that was written to the Jewish people. Moses wrote the Pentateuch, the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, and he wrote those to give the Jewish people an understanding of why God called them out uh, through their father Abraham from Ur of the Chaldees and brought them to a place where he promised to give them a land. And I think tonight we'll probably get into the Abrahamic covenant. And that that itself, starting in Genesis chapter 12, that that, that covenant gives us the framework for not only understanding history, but understanding uh, the rest of the Old Testament. And only the first 11 chapters of Genesis uh, really are focused on the age of the Gentiles. So once we get past that, we're really focused on something uh, something different. And realize that, that since that's written to Israel, it's not written to the church. It's like going and reading your next-door neighbor's mail. And a lot of people, unfortunately, don't understand that. They read the Old Testament as if it's addressed to them. And that would be like going over and uh, taking your your neighbor's mortgage bill out of his mailbox, bringing it home and thinking it was yours, and then you paying his mortgage bill. Well, that's great for him, but it doesn't do anything for your finances or your spiritual life. So we have to understand that there are those those distinctions, and that's essentially what a lot of people do. Now, that doesn't mean that when you read the mail that is addressed to your neighbor, that there aren't things that are similar and things that are important for you and things you can learn from it. When we read the Old Testament, it has application to us. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter chapter 10, that these things are written as an example for us. So we're to be familiar with the Old Testament, we're to know the Old Testament, because the Old Testament is the framework and the background for understanding, uh, understanding the New Testament. And you can't really get into the New Testament and understand the things, especially in the Gospels, that Jesus is saying and that Jesus is teaching if you don't understand the background, because his life is still lived within the age of Israel. It's still le- lived... Uh, under the Mosaic law. he, As he said at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, I came uh, not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And so he fulfills the law, but at the same time in his life, he's setting a precedent for what will be uh, coming in the future, which is the church age. So his life is sort of a hinge in the period of the dispensations, and we'll get into that when we get there. So dispensations are important because it helps open up the Bible to us so that we can understand it. Secondly, as we look at this, we understand that God's plan and purpose for mankind 
is related to something broader that happened at a cosmic level that we refer to as the angelic conflict or the satanic rebellion, which occurred in eternity past as Satan, uh, Lucifer, the highest of all the angels that God had created, as Lucifer sinned by his pride wanting to be like God, and then God apparently convened a council of the angels and judged the angels because Matthew twenty five forty one we had the statement that that the lake of fire was has already been prepared for the devil and his angels, indicating that some sort of judicial sentence had been pronounced and their uh, place of execution has been created, but something was put on hold. Why was it put on hold? And I believe that we get a glimpse of that in various passages in the Old Testament, but mostly in the book of Job. And we'll talk a little bit more about Job later on tonight. But Job is, I believe, the first book of the Old Testament to be written. Moses wrote the Pentateuch in approximately by by 1404. He writes it during the 40 years of the wilderness wanderings. I think he had material that was his is indicated by the Toledot sections in the in the uh, book of Genesis these are the records of i think he had records that were handed down from adam and noah and um, abraham isaac and jacob and he used that under the guidance and inspiration of god the holy spirit to write the write the pentateuch and that this then becomes uh, the message to israel but before he wrote that the, the events in the book of Job were written, and I believe they were probably written by Job himself, and most scholars believe that Job probably took place somewhat about the same time, maybe a little before, a little after, of the events in the life of Abraham. But I think it's significant to understand that the first book that, that is written, if, if it's Job, focuses on understanding why there is suffering why there seems to be undeserved suffering and how that fits. And it fits only when we understand it within the framework of this satanic challenge to God that occurs in Job chapter 1. So by looking at dispensations, we understand God's plan and purpose for history, that that plan and purpose for history fits within a broader conflict that began with Satan's rebellion against God. And then... When we start drilling down in the different periods of history, we see that they have certain characteristics. Each one has different aspects or characteristics to the spiritual life of the individual believer, and there are different circumstances in terms of God's provision for believers in terms of their life. There's different levels of revelation given. And I believe that this what this demonstrates is God is showing through each of the dispensations, that there are a number of different ways in which God can provide for mankind uh, through grace, and that no matter which circumstance there is, going from almost nothing to almost everything in the millennial kingdom, there's still failure. In every dispensation, the problem is volition. The problem is human choice, just as it mirrors Satan's uh, original Uh, volitional choice against God. This helps open up our understanding of Scripture. So just also by way of review, we um, uh, looked at the fact that it is through 
the covenants, especially the first um, first four covenants, the Edenic or creation covenant, the Adamic covenant, Noahic covenant, Abrahamic covenant, that God gives new revelation, and this shifts the framework for human history, how God is administering history. That word administration from the Greek word oikonomia is a word that was translated in older translations by that word dispensation. It has to do with an administration or an economy, how God is overseeing or administering human history. So we have the Gentile covenants. There are three, the Edenic or creation covenant, the Adamic covenant, the Noahic covenant. They, they are very similar, as we've seen in our study so far. And the Noahic covenant is the current covenant that governs all of human history and doesn't end until... God destroys the present heavens and earth by fire at the end of the millennial kingdom. Then, after the failure of the human race at the Tower of Babel, God called out a specific individual that it would be through him that God would bless the entire human race, and that was the Abrahamic covenant. It is summarized in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, although the actual covenant itself is not given until uh, Genesis chapter 15, when you have the formal uh, the formal ratification of the covenant uh, ceremony taking place. But there are three elements to the Abrahamic covenant, God's promise of a land, a seed, and worldwide blessing. Each of those elements are then further expanded in the real estate covenant, Davidic covenant, and the new covenant. Now let me say something here, because one of the questions that came in that someone asked was, what about the covenant of works and the covenant of grace? When, when talking about the covenants. And we could add the covenant of redemption to that. Now, those are not biblical covenants. You can't find a text where God gives a covenant of grace, a covenant of works, or covenant of redemption. Actually, I should say that in this order, work, covenant of works, covenant of grace, and covenant of redemption. Those are theologically inferred covenants that are the foundation for what is known as covenant Theology, which was developed out of a Reformed tradition in the uh, 17th century. And they are not biblical covenants. In fact, I, I don't think you can actually, the word inferred might not even be the right, right one. They were theologically deduced, not deduced from Scripture. There's a difference here between taking scriptural statements and making scripture, making deductions theologically from scriptural statements. For example, you have a statement that Jesus is God. You have clear passages that teach that the Holy Spirit is God. You have clear passages that teach that there is a third person, God the Father. You put those three together, you can deduce from them the doctrine of the Trinity. But your premises are grounded in scripture. That is a scriptural, scripturally based deduction. Whereas you can take a, come to theological conclusions that are not script necessarily scripturally grounded, and then you can, on the basis of logic, infer certain conclusions that are not necessarily scriptural. This is what happens when you develop a, a an idealistic type of theology which Reformed theology is guilty of, and then you come in and you read your system into the passage. Now, uh, 
covenant theology is not the only system like that that is read into the text. I think every theological system, people have difficulty with that because once you come to certain conclusions about what you think the Bible says, then you have a tendency, we all do, to read that into other places in Scripture. And that's called deductive theology and not inductive theology. Inductive theology reads the text and derives its principles from the text, not from a a, a theologically consistent system that is then read into the text. And um, this is uh, just an example of this was one time I made a statement in talking to Dr. John Walbert, who was the president of Dallas Theological Seminary. I was uh, visiting with him in his office in the, about 1997, and I made a statement where I said that something was true because it was dispensational. And he said, Robbie, it's true because it's biblical, and because it's biblical, it's dispensational. And often people miss that is a fine argument, but is an important one because a lot of people will, will conclude that because something is, dispensation, is, is right because it's dispensational. No, it's right because it's biblical. Understand? It's right because that's what the Bible says. And because that's what the Bible says, it fits into dis, a dispensational theology. So these are the covenants that we're talking about. And we've broken the history of man down into ages. The first age starts with creation. It's known as the age of the Gentiles. An age is a broad period that is subdivided into dispensations. The age of the Gentiles ends with the call of Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. Prior to that, God is working through all the peoples on the earth. There's no distinction between a, with a special group of people that God's working with. And all are Gentiles. You have one race. You have one language up to the Tower of Babel. And then God called out Abram from Ur of the Chaldees in Genesis 12.1. And this, from this point on, God is going to work through a special people through the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And this is the age of Israel. It comprises the dispensation of the patriarchs, sometimes called the dispensation of promise, and the dispensation of the law. It covers the period of Christ's uh, humanity on the earth, the messianic uh, dispensation, and then ends at the cross. The day of Pentecost, 50 days after the crucifixion, we have the beginning of the church age, the church age ends with the rapture of the church, and then there's the last period of the age of Israel, which is known as the tribulation or Daniel's 70th week. At the end of that 70th week, Jesus Christ returns uh, in the returns to the earth uh, as a, as the victor, uh, victor, the conqueror who destroys the antichrist, the false prophet, and uh, Satan casts. Uh, the false prophet and the Antichrist into the lake of fire, Satan into the abyss, and establishes his kingdom on the earth, which will last for a thousand years, known as the Messianic Age. This ends with the judgment. Uh, there will be a rebellion at the end, the Gog and Magog rebellion, and then the judgment of the great white throne, and then there's a new heavens and new earth and eternity future. That's the, that's the framework for the ages. Now, last time we covered the Adamic Covenant, the Adamic Covenant is a revision of the original creation covenant. Just to review, God <coughs> brings judgment, announces judgment or consequences from, because of spiritual death on, on the human race. Now, 
Remember, the penalty for sin was spiritual death. God said, in the day that you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. At that instant, they came under a judicial penalty, and they died as a, spiritually. They were separated from God. God came to walk in the garden, and they ran and hid. They tried to cover themselves up with fig leaves uh, and solve their problem on their own. That, that in, indicated that they were already spiritually dead. At that point, God announced a curse. That curse is the consequence of spiritual death, the corruption that impacts all the spheres of creation as a result of sin entering into the creation. So it affected the animal kingdom. This is indicated through the announcement to the serpent. Uh, you, you are cursed more than all the cattle and more than every beast of the field. That, that comparative there indicates that the beasts of the field, the animals are all judged, but the serpent more so. Then um, there's enmity that's put between the serpent and the woman and between uh, the Satan's seed and her seed. Her seed is an allusion to the ultimate redeemer who is the Lord Jesus Christ, the seed of the woman. So this is called the Proto-Evangelium or the first mention of the gospel in the Old Testament indicating that the seed of the woman will defeat the seed of the serpent. Redemption will come through the seed of the woman. I believe that's the basic gospel message that people needed to believe in the Old Testament. The woman is now going to have sorrow and pain in conception, and she's going to have a desire to dominate her husband, and he's going to have a desire to dominate her. The word for rule here can indicate a domineering rule. This sets up the war of the sexes. Not only she wants to wear the pants in the family, he does too, and there's a fight. And there's always going to be this fight over authority in the family when you have two sin natures that are running up against each other. And the only way to reverse that is what's seen in Ephesians chapter 5 is that the, the believing husband and the believing wife learn to properly orient themselves to the roles within marriage. The husband is to love the wife as Christ loved the church, and he's not to seek to rule over her but to love her as Christ loved the church. And the wife is to submit to the husband as unto the Lord. When they are walking in their roles that are defined in Ephesians chapter 5 under the principle of, of the sanctifying ministry of God the Holy Spirit, then this aspect, this consequence of sin can begin to be, uh, be reversed in their lives as they grow, grow spiritually. Adam is addressed in verse 17 and uh, he's announced that his primary responsibility was to guard and keep the garden, but now that area of responsibility, his area of labor, is now going to become a challenge to him, and the ground will bring forth weeds and thistles and thorns, and he's going to earn his bread by the sweat of his brow. And then physical death is first mentioned at the end of verse 19, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. I pointed this chart out last time. I think this is a very important thing to realize in terms of understanding that <clears throat> that what is defined and outlined in Genesis 3, 15 and following is a modification of the original mandate mandates to man uh, given under the creation covenant. So man was initially told to be fruitful and multiply. The woman now is going to have difficulty doing that. There will be pain in childbirth. The woman was created to be an etzer, a helper uh, to the man, and now there's going to be an authority struggle. Uh, man and woman were 
created in the image and likeness of God together to subdue the earth, but the earth is now cursed. It will bring forth thorns and thistles and weeds, and there will be droughts, and there will be global catastrophe. What's the new word? Global? It's not catastrophe. What is it? What? No, no, no. There's a new word that came out today. Disruption. Climate disruption. That's what it was. Climate disruption. Got it. We've got to keep up. You know, every time we get we, we show the problems with the current term, then they come up with something new. Um, man's to rule over the animals, but the animals are going to be cursed. Every plant was given for food initially, but then it's only the plants of the field. Each of these things that you see in that right right column are going to have something modified, or they're going to be restated in the Noahic covenants, which we'll study in just a minute. They were created to serve and guard the Garden of Eden, but now they are expelled, and God set an army of cherubs, cherubim, the plural. He set cherubim around the garden with flaming swords. A sword always is a metaphor or always symbolizes the right to take life. And so man is prohibited from entering the garden on the pain of losing life. Um, they were not to eat of the fruit of the, of the uh, fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but they ate, and now they are spiritually dead, which will bring about physical death. Okay, that brings us up now to the uh, next dispensation. New revelation brings a new uh, brings new responsibilities, a new test, and it will end in a failure related to that particular. So we'll just run through the issues related to this new dispensation. The dispensation is called uh, the dispensation of conscience or self-determination. It covers the period from Genesis 3-9 to chapter 8, verse 14. Uh, Actually, I would change that from 8-14. Let's change that to um, 8-19. 8-14 is when they come off the ark. Um, and God tells Noah to come out of the ark, but it really actually doesn't change until um, God begins to speak to them again in verses uh, 20 and 21 when Noah builds the altar to the Lord. So we'll take it through 8.19, and then uh, 8.20 we'll start the next. The next one, the central person during this dispensation is Adam. The name of this dispensation is human conscience or self-determination. There's no authority higher than the, the family or the patriarch of the family. There's no uh, government. I believe that there is some sort of judicial um, governance that proceeds from Eden, that God's presence in the form of his spirit is still on the earth in Eden, his garden. And this is indicated by a verse in Genesis chapter 6, Uh, In Genesis chapter 6, verse 3, the Lord said, and your translation will read, my spirit shall not strive with man forever. The word, the Hebrew word translated strive is a hapax legomenon. That's a Latin term meaning it's only used one time. This is the only time in Hebrew literature that this word is used. Now, how do you figure out? That's, that's a real fun investigative procedure. How do you figure out what a word means when you only have one use of it? Well, in the, in the ancient Near East, you have a family of Semitic languages that are very, very close to one another. 
They sound similar. They're based on consonantal uh, alphabets like Arabic and and Hebrew. They read from right to left. Um, you had Ugaritic, you had Akkadian, you had these, uh, you had uh, uh, Arabic, and by l- seeing cognates or the same root and how it's used in these other languages, you can you can if the word is used. Uh, more in other languages in Arabic and Ugaritic and Akkadian, then you can discover what it means in Hebrew, what the range of meaning would be. And this particular word is is attested in both Akkadian and Ugaritic. And in those languages, it has the meaning of abiding, of remaining, which makes a lot of sense here. Uh, God is saying, uh, God, Spirit, uh, you could make a case for strive, but you have to stretch it. The linguistically, it doesn't fit at all. And the best reading would be, my spirit shall not abide with man forever. Uh, it's indicating that it ha- God's spirit has been abiding during this dispensation. And that draws a parallel with the uh, last dispensation, which is the millennial kingdom, when God's son's presence will be on the earth. So you had a place... On the garden, remember the Garden of Eden is still there through this entire time. Anybody who lived up until the flood could go walk to the Garden of Eden and could see the cherubim army surrounding the Garden of Eden, preventing anybody from coming there. Uh, they didn't go away just because Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden. They stayed there, and the presence of the garden was still there until it's destroyed in the flood. And so God... I believe that that the reason you didn't have human government on the earth is that when there were conflicts, ultimately this was brought to God and where it was adjudicated. And then, um, and so during this time, all you have is a limited amount of revelation that man is responsible for, and he's responsible to the Adamic covenant, still to subdue and rule, even though now there's a conflict. The wife is subject to her husband. Uh, they're to have faith in the promised uh, Redeemer. And the basic test then is, will man follow his conscience, which should be based upon the revelation that God had given them? There's no written law. There's no government. Uh, the only thing man has is a conscience, which gives him absolute standards based on the revelation that had been given by God to Adam and uh, and Eve. This proves to be insufficient for man. He can't contr- govern it's self-governance. He can't govern himself. He can't can't control himself. Sin takes over. This is what is indicated in the first story that we're told that when Adam uh, I mean when Cain and Abel have their conflict and um, Cain brings his own idea of a good offering, which is from the fruit of the field. Abel brings an animal, animal sacrifice, according to the standards that we infer that God gave them when God clothed Adam and Eve with uh, with the gar- garments of the animals. God had to kill the animal. God had to. God gave them a a visual. Uh, object lesson of what death was. They had no idea. When God said, you're going to die, they didn't know what that meant. So God gave them a little object lesson. He took these animals, he killed them, he skinned them, 
He first would have eviscerated them or field-dressed them. He then skinned them. Then he had to teach them how to properly dress the skins and how to take care of the skins. Otherwise, if you just take an animal hide and you put it out in the air and it dries, it's going to, be, it's going to be, become hard and brittle and stiff, and it doesn't do any good. So if God made clothing for them from the animal skins, then even though it doesn't spell everything out, God would have had to teach them how to properly skin and dress and prepare the hide so that it would be soft and supple and usable for clothing. In the process, we can, I think, uh, infer that he taught them about sacrifice. And, and later on, and when we get to Genesis chapter 6, 7, and 8 with the story of the flood, God tells Noah, you're, you're to take two of every unclean animal on the ark and seven of every clean animal. Well, nowhere from Genesis 1 through 5 has God given instruction on what makes an animal clean or unclean. But obviously, Noah knew what the difference was. It wasn't, uh, God has, he, it, this was already part of their knowledge base. So in Genesis 1 through 11, we're giving a, given a skeletal structure of the early history of the human race. But we know from looking at Hebrews 11 and some other passages in the Old Testament that, that those folks knew a lot more than is told in Genesis 1 through 11. They obviously no one knew what a clean and an unclean animal was. Later on, we're going to find out uh, from Hebrews 11, that when Abraham was going to sacrifice Isaac, that he knew that God could raise him from the dead. But there's nothing that says that in Genesis, 20, uh, Genesis 22. You can read Genesis 22 all day long. You're never going to get the idea that, that Abraham understands that if he kills Isaac, that God's going to raise him from the dead. But that's clear from Hebrews 11. What I'm saying is there's more going on in the first 11 chapters than we're told but what we're told gives us a pretty good indication that they they must have known some other things. So uh, Cain brings the wrong kind of sacrifice based on Hebrews 11. Uh, Abel brings the right kind of sacrifice. And God says to, to Cain in verse 6, uh, after Cain has really pitched a, t- a pity party at a temper tantrum, Uh, because God didn't accept his offering, and he's gotten very angry. According to verse 5, God says, Why are you angry? Why is your countenance fallen? He looks depressed. He's discouraged. He's been rejected. Poor, poor Cain. He disobeyed God. God says, If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. See, this is the theme of this dispensation, that man has to rule over his sin nature. The only thing he has to do it with is his conscience, which should be informed by uh, what revelation God has given him at this particular time. So the, the test is, will man follow his conscience and obey God, or is he going to disobey God and try to do it his own way? And, of course, that's what the failure is. He disobeys God, and the result is there's murder in Genesis 4.8, and ultimately, the dispensation ends with the angelic infiltration in Genesis chapter 6 when the sons of God look at the daughters of men, that they're beautiful, and they take them wives for themselves. Now, we know from Job 1 and Job 3 that these sons of God are terms used for angels, Beneha Elohim. 
Second failure is man cannot restore or recover a perfect environment by his own efforts. And third, that man must rely upon God's grace. Human resources are inadequate to resolve the consequences of sin, even in an environment that's only one step removed from perfection. And then finally, we see that the human race failed by cohabiting with the demons, Genesis 6-3, and rejecting God and turning to evil in Genesis uh, 6-5. So the result of this is complete failure, and God is going to go to uh, the next stage in his administration. He brings about a judgment, the worldwide flood at the time of Noah, but there's grace extended. There's always grace before judgment. For 120 years, Noah will proclaim God's saving grace. That's also in Genesis chapter 6, verse 3, but there's no positive response. The volitional issue then for salvation is faith in the promised seed of the woman, Second, there's a spiritual life based on the ritual that God's given them in terms of sacrifice and faith and trust in the future uh, redemption that God will provide. And third, that human conscience is demonstrated to be insufficient to provide man with stability, personal, social, or spiritual integrity. Man can't do it apart from God. One last thing we need to do is to tie this into the angelic conflict, and I don't have slides on this. What we understand is that this dispensation began because Satan attacked the volition of Eve and then Adam, Eve and Adam in the garden. The volition was a point uh, attack on the point of, of their character, and in failing the test, man showed that he he rejected the authority of God and sought to be his own authority. When Satan said, said to the woman to, to look at the fruit, that what did God say? And she said that we shall not touch or eat the fruit. Uh, Satan says uh, to her, it's the way he forms the question, he says, has God really said you shall not eat of the tree of the garden? And then the serpent says in verse 4, you will not certainly die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open. You'll be like God, knowing good and good and evil. And so the woman looks at the tree and decides that she can evaluate whether God's statement was true or not on her own. And so she makes a, a, a judgment call. She judges God's statement on her own, and that's the height of arrogance. She puts herself in a position to judge whether God is true or not. And so the result is that that she sins, then Adam sins. This failure mirrored the failure of the angelic volition prior to uh, prior when, when, when Lucifer rebelled. And so L- Satan is trying to duplicate that fall, and he wins a tactical victory. But it is a pyrrhic victory because in winning this victory in the garden, it ultimately sets things up for his total defeat. Because in the failure of Adam and the woman, God is going to demonstrate his righteousness, his justice, his grace, and his love in ways that the angels never could imagine. Uh, There was no redemptive solution prior to the fall. There's no indication of that anywhere in Scripture. They had a choice. They could either follow God or follow, follow Satan. If you want to call that the redemptive solution, fine, but there's nobody paying any price Redemption means to pay a price. Who paid the price? 
You know, I've heard people say, well, there was a redemptive solution. Well, it violates the very meaning of the word redemption if you apply it to the angels because no one pays a price. A redemption solution means somebody's paying a price. Who paid the price? No one did. Jesus could pay the price for the human race because Jesus is fully man. Because he is human, he can die for the rest of the human race. We're all connected. We're all brothers and sisters. We all trace our lineage back to who? Don't say Adam. We all trace our lineage back to Noah. We all go back to the ark, every one of us. And, and because we're all connected genetically and biologically through Noah, one of us can die for the rest of us if he meets the qualifications. Jesus had to become a human being. The second person of the Trinity had to become a human being in order to die for everybody else. Now, you didn't, couldn't do that under the angelic creation because each angel is created individually by God. That's why they are called the sons of God because they were each directly created by God. Every time you have this term, sons of God, Beneha Elohim, in the Old Testament, it refers to the demons, to the fallen angels, or, I mean, or excuse me, to the angels as a whole and usually to the fallen angels in, in context. Give me a minute to deal with this. Okay. Um, so there's a tactical victory but it's a Pyrrhic victory. Pyrrhic victory means it's one that is so costly that it's really a defeat. You may have won the battle, but you actually lost it because your, 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 your uh, casualties are so great. So God establishes a grace plan to deal with man's failure, and that grace plan puts his integrity on display. And it's going to show that God deals with, the, with fallen human beings and he, just as he dealt with the fallen angels out of grace and um, in terms of his righteousness. So his decree, his condemnation of Satan and the fallen angels is perfectly compatible with his righteousness and his justice. Now, after that, Satan basically becomes the ruler of the world. Second uh, Corinthians 4.4 calls him the God of this age. Jesus referred to him as the ruler of this, of this world uh, a couple of times. And what that means is he usurped the position of Adam because Adam failed. Satan becomes the ruler of the planet. And now what he's going to try to do in the, this dispensation of human conscience is to destroy God's plan to redeem the human race through the seed of the woman. So he's going to try to corrupt the seed. And he does this by sending a, a group of fallen angels uh, that are uh, identified here in Genesis 6-3, and they are going to somehow take on human form. This is indicated very clearly in, in Jude, Second Peter, other passages make this very clear. They left their first estate, and they took on bodies, and they committed a sexual sin because in... In Jude, it compares the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah, a sexual sin, to the sin of these angels, making clear that it's a sexual sin. And their attempt was to uh, create a and destroy, uh, uh, or to create a hybrid race that wasn't purely human anymore, to destroy the purity of the seed of the woman. And so this is what uh, takes place. And before it can reach 
its conclusion, the Lord is going to intervene. This is why he has to wipe out all of humanity. That doesn't necessarily mean that every human being is some sort of hybrid, but it's reached sort of a critical mass, and God's going to save out Noah, his wife, their sons, and their wives because they're the only ones that would that are positive and that are uh, free from any uh, genetic impurity. And so this I, relates this to the angelic conflict. Now, after the flood, God establishes a new covenant. So it's new revelation. This means that God is shifting how he administers human, human history again. This means a new dispensation, a new administration, a new way in which God is governing the human race. The scripture for the Noahic covenant is given in the first 17 verses of Genesis 9. The covenant is between God and Noah. It is an unconditional covenant. It is a covenant that is uh, related in many of its proposals to what has gone before in the Adamic and Edenic covenant, addressing the concept of being fruitful and multiplying. It addresses procreation. It addresses uh, judgment. It addresses what foods are eaten. It's, it's very similar. So it's another modification because now we're two steps removed from the evil of, I mean, from the perfection of the garden, and there's new stipulations. So Noah is the representative of the human race. The provisions are, first of all, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, which goes back to Genesis chapter 1, verses uh, 26 to 28. Uh, second provision in Genesis 9-2, the fear of you will be upon all of the animals. See, there was no fear prior to the fall. At the time of the fall, there's an authority relationship, but not fear. You don't see that mentioned in Genesis chapter 3. But now the the corruption of sin is, is going to be ratcheted up a couple of notches, and the fear of the anim- uh, there will be fear in the animals for human beings. There's going to be a dietary change. There was a dietary change, remember, from uh, the perfect environment to the environment after Adam because it was they could eat anything before. Now it's just the herb of the field. And then starting in Genesis 9, every living thing shall be food for you. They weren't eating meat. They weren't eating fish. They weren't eating chickens. I don't know what they ever said. They said, what does that taste like? Well, you couldn't say it tastes like a chicken because they, nobody knew what a chicken tasted like. So nobody knew what anything tasted like, I guess. Every living thing shall be food for you. And, and this is a mandate from God um, <clears throat> that, that we are to eat meat. This is part of the covenant and part of our diet. It should be for whatever reason. There have been a lot of, of uh, theories that have uh, been investigated, but nobody's come up with anything um, certain. There's a limitation. We're to eat, eat or drink blood. In Genesis 9-4, this is not explained until later in the Mosaic Law when it cl- becomes clear for the first time that because life is in the blood. And so they were not to eat or drink blood. And capital punishment was mandated in Genesis 9-5 and 6. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. That's a mandate. It's not an option. God is omniscient. Usually hear a couple of things. You hear, well, it's not a deterrent. Well, the way we practice it in this country wouldn't deter anybody because you wait 15 years before it's ever 
ever accomplish. Another argument, well, is it costs so much. It costs more to execute somebody than it does to keep them alive for the rest of their life. But it wouldn't if you would have a speedy punishment. If you would have a trial and all their appeals within about a year and then execute them, then you wouldn't have a problem. People say, oh, yeah, well, new evidence always comes out. You may inadvertently execute somebody. God in his omniscience certainly knew that there would be people under the best systems that would be wrongly accused and wrongly condemned for many things. Guess what? It happened to his own son. He was wrongly condemned, and he was executed as a criminal on the cross. God understands this very, very well. And nevertheless, he still gave the command that man is responsible to do that. There was also a promise of no more universal flood given in Genesis 9, 8 through 11. And the token of the covenant, the sign of the covenant, is the rainbow. So every time you see a rainbow, it should remind you of six of these things. That we are to, we've got dietary change, we're to eat meat, we're not to eat or drink blood. Capital punishment is to be... uh, uh, applied. There's a promise of no more universal flood that um, uh, man is um, not to, um, is to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. God hasn't, hasn't changed that. That doesn't mean that you're supposed to be just irresponsible and have as many children as possibly come out. Do you have a question, Calvin? Yes, I do. What about the command to subdue the earth? The command to subdue the earth that is not repeated here. It's not repeated in Genesis uh, 3. Now, there's two ways to handle that. Either it's still in effect, but we're not going to subdue it until, ultimately until Jesus returns. Psalm 110.1, till I make your enemies my footstool. Uh, until I make your, my enemies your footstool. And that's repeated in Hebrews 1.13, uh, I believe. Uh, when Jesus returns as the ideal man, the perfect man, and establishes his kingdom, at that point, the earth is subdued. So fallen man will be unable to fulfill that. It's only fulfilled in in the perfect God-man. Okay. The angelic conflict. We see that Satan attacks man's volition. Uh, Again, the focal point of character. Uh, I'm going to skip these because I've reviewed this already. I put the slide in the wrong place. Okay, let me. Okay, dispensation three. We come to the third dispensation now. That comes in at this particular point with the with the Noahic covenant. It starts a new dispensation, a new administration. This is covered in Genesis eight fifteen through eleven thirty two. So it covers uh, just over two two three chapters. Uh, the central person is Noah. The name is human government. I've also heard it referred to as civil government. And the responsibility is to fulfill the Noahic covenant. The point of human government is the command related to capital punishment, that when God delegated to human beings for the first time the judicial authority to take the life of a human being, that's the most serious penalty, the most serious judicial decision that can be made. It implies within it all other judicial decisions. If man is given the most significant responsibility of making a judicial decision related to capital punishment, then lesser judicial decisions are also implied. So human government is established at this point. 
We don't have nations yet. That, that doesn't occur until after the Tower of Babel. But you still have tribes, you have clans, you have villages that need to have some sort of governing structure. God is no longer present on the earth. Uh, as he said in Genesis chapter 6, verse 3, my spirit will not abide with you anymore. And so uh, he's not present, so that delegated responsibility now goes to man. So the responsibility in this period is to fulfill the Noahic covenant, which is primarily given under the test to judge human government is to rule justly. The failure of that takes place really under Nimrod at Babel. He is a tyrant. Second, the failure, the command is to disperse, to fill the earth. They don't disperse. They gather together at Babel, and they are going to build a tower against God. They want to make a name for themselves against God. And and in one sense, they want to build a tower so that they can climb up high enough that, that they can escape any more floodwaters. God sends them that way. So that's their failure. At the Tower of Babel, it's the first attempt at a united world against God. It's the first attempt at a united nations, the first attempt at globalism, uh, the first attempt to unite against God, and God is going to judge them by scattering the people through a multiplication of their languages. Uh, in grace, though, God preserves a remnant through whom he is going to work, and this is going to be developed uh, through Abraham in the next uh, age and the next dispensation. In the angelic conflict, this is a time when idolatry in, is developed and demonism takes place. If we were to go back, I'm going to flip back there real quick. In Romans chapter 1, I believe, is a historical review of this, this era. We read in verse 20 of Romans 1, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but they became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. This is what happens after the flood. Professing to be wise, they became fools and change the glory or exchange the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and, and creeping things. And so what happens historically is you have the development of idolatry and demonism. Now, why do I say that? Behind the false gods of mythology are demons. 1 Corinthians 10, 19, and 20. Paul is talking about the issue of sacrificing meat to idols and whether or not it's okay to eat that meat. But in the context of that, he says in verse 20, No, but I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons. They may be sacrificing them to Dionysius, and they may be sacrificing them to Zeus, and they may be sacrificing them to any number of Greek gods and goddesses, but... Paul says they're really sacrificing them to demons. There, there's an array of demons that are behind the gods and goddesses of, of the uh, pantheon. All right, that brings us to the Abrahamic covenant. I'm going to stop here. We got any questions, Bryce? But I've already answered it. Okay. Okay, we'll just stop here. This is a good breaking point. We'll come back next time and start with the Abrahamic Covenant and go through the stipulations of the Abrahamic Covenant, and hopefully I won't be coughing or snorting or anything else next week, okay?
Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things and to be reminded of your grace throughout history that no matter what human failure there might be, we're always met by your grace. We're always met by a uh, grace provision of salvation that is grounded in your righteousness and justice and that your love is demonstrated to us always by your plan of salvation, that you sent your Son, your one and only Son, to die on the cross for our sins, that by his death we might have eternal life. And we pray that you would challenge us with our understanding of the Word, help us to apply these things, apply them in our understanding of your Word, that we may read your Word more intelligently. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.